No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People Their Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show, which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, Coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Aurelia Duffels, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. Uh, so welcome to the show, and unfortunately, Marilia can't be with us, but we have a very special guest today. We have uh, Dr. Samuel Perry. Dr. Perry is an award-winning scholar and teacher. He is uh, among the nation's leading experts on conservative Christianity and American politics, along with numerous articles published in leading academic journals. Dr. Perry has also authored or co-authored four books. The latest, which is coming out shortly, is called The Flag and the Cross, White Christianity Christian nationalism and the threat to American democracy. Uh, we hope to talk to him about that book and, and you know, other issues. This is very important stuff that he's working on. Uh, Dr. Perry, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This will be fun. Yeah, it will be fun. And, and, you know, let me start out by telling you where I stand because I'm so confused by all this. You know, I the first guy I worked for in – uh, politics was Jimmy Carter, very religious okay. guy. I'm a religious guy, to be honest with you. Very religious guy, but somehow the uh, right wing Republicans had uh, had co opted us on on the issue of religion. All of a sudden, you know, a guy named Jerry Falwell, who I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, yep. came. You know, the rise of him and his, his political group and, and Liberty University and all that stuff, it seemed all of a sudden that to be a Democrat was to be unchristian. And I, I, I'm not quite sh- sure how that happened. Uh, and do you think that's still the case? Do do ha- have have liberals somehow been, have they co-opted God uh, uh, somehow so that liberals are now seen as, as, as unchristian? Uh, that has absolutely become more the case in the past few decades. So around the 1970s, uh, and, and we, you know, we can, we can document this statistically with something called the General Social Survey. Around the 1970s, uh, let's just say white evangelicals. You were, you were basically the same percentage of Democrats and Republicans were white evangelical uh, and, and white, white Christian. Um, doesn't mean they're necessarily religious, but you, you basically had the same kinds of numbers. And so uh, over the past few decades, though, because of political sorting, you have had the, the Republican Party has become increasingly 
disproportionately white but increasingly conservative Christian, especially evangelical. About four in ten Republicans are evangelical, and about eight in ten are white Christians. Um, wow. That doesn't mean there are no Christians and no religious people in the Democrats, but they're more diverse. So the Democratic Party uh, is filled with uh, uh, African-American Protestants and mainline Protestants and yeah. uh, and more progressive Catholics, but they're also full of uh, a larger percentage of secular Americans uh, who, who feel like the Democratic Party is the only place where they can uh, be represented or have their, their voices heard. And so... Uh, because of greater diversity with the Democratic within the Democratic Party, Republicans are able to leverage this argument, which is which is is not an accurate argument, but they're able to leverage this argument that the Republican Party is the party for uh, deeply religious or, or religiously conservative Americans. Well, you know, as you have people, it seems to me this group of people is becoming even more conservative and more conservative as that goes on. Uh, they it seems to me they see a lot of Republicans as not Christian enough. Do you think that there'll be a a movement to start a third party, like a national Christian nationalist Christian party, which might coalesce a lot of these disenfranchised groups? Do you think that's a potential down the road? Oh, that's a good question. I I, I do think. I mean, within the last six or seven years. Uh, I can't tell you the number of people that I've that I've talked to that say around the country that are concerned Christians uh, that they they may be theologically conservative Christians but they're not far right politically uh, and mm-hmm. they feel politically homeless that is the the term that they use uh, politically homeless they feel like the Republican Party has completely uh, gone off to the right in a very reactionary uh, white nationalist kind of direction even anti democratic in some ways. Uh, but they also feel uncomfortable in the Democratic Party because they say are pro they're pro lifers or they are right. um, or they are uh, you know uncomfortable with uh, more government involvement say in in uh, economic issues they're scared of socialism or some kind of you know uh, some kind of boogeyman uh, that they have kind of got in their mind that 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 the Democrats want to institute and so they I think a third party they they often communicate like hey wouldn't it be great if we had some kind of other option other than where we feel like these two are going. In the end, though, they, they end up going with what they are told is the, is the most important issue, and that's often abortion or Supreme Court justices or religious liberty. And so they end up voting Republican, even though oftentimes they do uh, hold their noses and have to, have to do that. So that is a, a large percentage of people that I'm talking to. But then you've got others that, are, that have really bought into the, the Republican Party line. They are partisans, and they, they have mingled their committed Christianity with far-right politics. And that's really what we're talking about with, say, white Christian nationalism. Well, let me ask you, has uh, the fact that that abortion, for example, has become a litmus test for both sides, right? It's a litmus test in the women's movement. Uh, it's a litmus test for for people to be involved in the, in the women's movement. That you have to stand up for a woman's right to choose, uh, and, of course, in the Republican Party, it's become a litmus test for being conservative, I, I think, being, right. being a conservative. Has that hurt right. us as liberals that, that, that we've taken this, this issue and, and, and embraced it so, uh, you know, made it so important? You know, uh, I would say on the right, uh, it is used as a... The, the abortion issue is is not something that statistics and I and I we can point to this statistically. 
uh, abortion is not something that drives people to the polls. Uh, like it, it, and when we ask Americans to rank on various surveys, when we ask them to rank or, or indicate what they felt like was the most important issue in whatever election, presidential election, 2016, 2020, uh, they very rarely say abortion. Even evangelicals are more likely to say the economy or immigration or health care mm-hmm. or something like that. Uh, abortion may be higher than, say, for like progressives, but even among evangelicals, it's not the highest thing, or Catholics even. Uh, what that suggests is that the abortion issue is often used as this symbolic boundary. Uh, just like you were saying, it kind of identifies you politically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also, if you are on the right... Um, it also uh, becomes a strategic thing that you can throw down. So, for example, many evangelicals, uh, you know, may have may have wanted to say vote for Trump or vote for Trump's kind of policies, but those things sound ugly. And, and Trump himself was a a big bully, right. and, and still and still is. And so, it sounds it sounds unchristian to say that you like Trump and that you like his policies and you like his his, his way of doing things, but. You can always point to abortion, right? If, if that is by by tribal uh, reputation, or if that is by your kind of group reputa- rep, 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 reputation and, and the thing that uh, you feel like indicates that you are, like you said, conservative or liberal, you can always point to abortion and say, hey, well, at least he's the pro-life president. Uh, and so that justifies you voting for the for anybody. You could vote for the devil himself as long as he promised he would support he would support. Uh, pro-life policies, uh, and you would be able to basically just kind of, you know, enjoy the rest of everything that you would promote. On the left, though, it's kind of interesting. So um, I, I do think rhetorically, the and, and I, I'm, I'm not making a I'm not making a statement about whether or not uh, the Democrats ought to ought to back away from 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 their pro-choice uh, stance. That really is not my point here. But my my, my broader point is that you could see the difference in the way Obama approached the abortion issue versus the way Hillary approached the abortion issue. And uh, Obama really came at it from the standpoint of almost apologetically pro-choice, right? Like he, mm-hmm. he, he, he said on the front end, like, hey, abortion is something that we would like to just see reduced, period. Uh, and the way we're going to do it is by, you know, say, education and, uh, you know, employment opportunities and, and not by outlawing it, but by doing this. And so he basically said, Hey, you know, I'm not I'm not for abortion. We should all want to reduce this because it's a sad thing. But but let's reduce it this way. Hillary Clinton, I think, uh, made a much stronger stance about women's right to choose and that she was for that. And I think uh, those on the right, especially the religious right, were able to point to her and say, look at that. Look how proud she is. Look how look how pro abortion she is. She's and and. I think in a way, Obama was able to sidestep that more effectively. So in some ways, the abortion thing does come back to, um, you know, rhetorically uh, be used against uh, Democrats in that way. Yeah. And, you know, that's why I asked the question. I've got to I've got to tell you that that um, when I was campaigning uh, in Minnesota one time for for um, John Kerry, actually, uh, mm-hmm. I had. Uh, I had a right-wing Christian come up to me and say, I can't vote for your candidate because he's pro-abortion. And I said, and that startled me. I said, nobody's pro-abortion. No, no, nobody's out there saying, let's figure out way to get ways to get more abortions, you know. But I could right. I could see that that was definitely, you know, the, the, 
the attitude they had. Uh, let me ask you, and this, this goes back to the comment you made about President Trump. How do yeah. Christians conflate the principles of Christianity with this militancy and, and violence and supporting people like Trump? I can tell you that my mother was a real strong Republican, but after he made the comments he made about women, you know, grabbing women, she wouldn't yeah, have voted right. for him. You know, that would have done it for her. She wouldn't have voted for him. Uh, so right. how do they do that? How, I mean, you know, Donald Trump seems to me to be, in principle, one of the least Christian people, you know, right. in America. So how do they right. conflict those issues? Do you know? Yeah, so I think, uh, and this is where I think we get into the difference between, say, Christianity theologically and white Christian nationalism as a, as a political ideology. Uh, so uh, Christianity, I mean, I, I think is, 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 is something that's on its own. It's a belief about, you know, the Bible, it's about the belief about mm-hmm. Jesus, and it's, and, it's, and it's certain religious practices. And so as a religion scholar, I like to distinguish, there are certainly some overlap, or like extreme overlap, People who endorse white Christian nationalism are often Christians, but uh, it doesn't mean that they're one and the same. And Christian nationalism is an ideology. I think what we are seeing far more prevalent on the right, on the political right today, and what that what that means, and, and how we mean it in our in our in our books and all the studies that we're doing, is is a is an ideology that people like us. And when I say people like us, I mean white, native-born, conservative Christians. Uh, founded this nation. Uh, this nation was uh, made prosperous by people like us, and it really should privilege people like us. And our identities, our, our preferences in the policies, in our sacred symbols, all of those things. And so looked at it from that perspective, Donald Trump is exactly what you want, because he's a guy who's going to fight for you. He's gonna, he's a, and he is a guy on, on, in 2016 and in 2020, he repeatedly, and I have quote after quote after quote of Donald Trump saying that he will fight for committed Christians, speaking to evangelical audiences or conservative Christian audiences, he said Christianity will have power. You don't need anybody else. You know, you're going to be having, you're going to have somebody representing you very, very well. And he talked to audiences and talked about how Christianity is under siege and it's under attack. He didn't mean the theology of Christianity. He meant people like us. He meant white, conservative, native-born Christians who are the rightful of this country. Uh, And so Donald Trump, uh, Tony Perkins, you know, this, this, uh, this, right, this pundit, know. you know, Tony Perkins. So Tony Perkins right. Politico in 2018, I think he summed it up the best. Uh, the, the author of this journal or, or this Politico article asked him, Hey, why did you give Trump a mulligan for the stormy Daniels thing? Uh, for, you know, pain that seems so inconsistent <laughs> with a Christian yeah. witness. And Tony Perkins said, you know, we were willing to give him a mulligan, uh, because we, we got tired of being pushed around by Obama and all of his leftists, and we were glad that somebody was on the playground who was willing to punch the bully. That's exactly what they want. So they, they want, that is, and that is who Trump represents. Uh, he is not necessarily the embodiment of everything that it is to be uh, Christ-like or a Christian, but they don't want that anyway. They want somebody who is going to fight for their values. We say it like this in the book. Um, you know, they could have had Pence when Trump was impeached, but they didn't want to have Pence because they don't want somebody who fights like a Christian. They want somebody who fights for Christians. There's a big difference between those two. Absolutely. And how important do you think it is 
that they have a legitimate claim as Christians to a lot of the symbolism that's out there in America. I mean, America was founded by Christians. It was um, a lot of the symbols. I don't care if it's uh, in God we trust on our money or, you know, the way our court system is, is, is set up or many parts of the Constitution refer to Christianity. Thomas Jefferson was, was a, was a biblical scholar. Uh, does, does that help them a lot? Does that give them legit, a lot of legitimacy that they can claim, as you just pointed out, that they founded the country, that they built the country? Uh, they have all those symbols. And, and how important is that, you know, now that we, we find ourselves tearing down some of the symbols of racism, for example, from the Civil War, right. uh, you know, we're pulling down statues of Robert E. Lee. Uh, so how important is the symbolism, do you think? Yeah, so, you, you know, this is, and this is certainly one of the, the symbols that are all over the country uh, in all of our monuments are, are certainly one example of uh, something that they could point to, uh, that, that people on the, on the right and Christian nationalists especially can point to and say, you know, how can you argue that our nation is a Christian nation when we see uh, Bible verses uh, and right. we see uh, references to um, references to, to, to God or in God we trust? It's on our money. It's on our capital. You know, it's all, all on all these things. Uh, and historically, we've had things like the Ten Commandments in courthouses, and for a long, right. long time we had Bible and prayer in public schools until the 1960s. Or, and, and I don't mean we've always had Bible and prayer in public schools, but I mean teacher-instituted or teacher-led. Bible and prayer, mandatory, uh, that, that kind of thing. Um, and, and so, uh, but I, I also think this is a faulty understanding of history, though, when they, if, they, if they point to the past and say, hey, we have, until the past 70 years, we were a Christian country, and we always knew that we were. Uh, I really think that's flattening history a little bit too much. And we talk about this in the book, but, but uh, you know, we have always uh, had, had debate about what kind of nation that we would be Thomas Jefferson, as you mentioned, is a great example of that. Like Thomas Jefferson was a, a, a biblical scholar; he knew a lot about Christianity, and, and yet uh, uh, you talk about somebody who is promoting disestablishment, or James Madison, uh, in, in terms of uh, of wanting the the church and the state to be separate. That's who we get the quote from, Thomas Jefferson. You know, the separation of church and state. And so, um, it's one thing to say that that a, a majority of people in our country have been Christian. And, and in some ways, our country has, at times, uh, privileged Christianity. It's another thing to say that that is consistent with our Constitution or our founding documents or, or even our founding ideals of, of separation of church and state, of no religious tests, uh, and, and that kind of thing. So uh, the issue is, is debatable. We have a complex history with religion. And anybody who tells you, I like uh, John Fia, who is a professor, history professor at Messiah College, and he's written on this. Um, you know, his answer to the question, are we a Christian nation or, or were we founded as a Christian nation? His answer is always, it's complicated. <laughs> and, and it really is. It, we have a complicated uh, past um, with, with Christianity. But uh, I would argue, and I think uh, many, many Americans are in agreement, in fact, the majority of Americans agree that uh, the separation of church and state is a good thing and, and that it is something that protects both our nation and, and religion. It protects both Christianity uh, and and our and our uh, country. Well, you know, it, it is a founding principle that they always seem to forget, 
you know, they always seem to forget that. And, and you know, uh, uh, my co-host, let me read you a question because I think this is very important. Uh, she writes that uh, oppressed people are not just disenfranchised, but they're people who have lost status and, uh, and see themselves as worse off in the social order. So her question is, do socially disenfranchised people, are they also biologically and psychologically compromised? And, and, and has there been much study on this? Uh, you know, I certainly know as a kid, I'm much older than you, but we were everything in, in, in public school. I was in public school. We said the Lord's Prayer. We celebrated right. Christmas, but but we, we celebrated Christmas and Easter. We had Christmas break, Easter break. Nobody ever ce- celebrated uh, Hanukkah or or Kwanzaa or you know or any other. Uh, it was uh, you know kind of de facto the official religion of America. And in my right, neighborhood, sure. I, I grew up in an Italian neighborhood, so you know only only Catholic Christians, as far as they were concerned. But uh, so is that what's going on with a lot of these people? It's not so much the religion as a loss in status that they're no longer, you know, that they see their control of, right. of, of, of the, you know, that they're, they're losing control of things. Right, right. So uh, it's, a, it's a both and, right? Like, so this has to do with, this certainly has to do with Christianity, it's Christian language, Christian symbolism, and oftentimes this is wrapped up in Christian identity and America's Christian heritage, or at least the, the idea of Americans, America's Christian founding uh, and, and the prevalence of those kinds of sacred symbols and identities. Uh, but because of what's taken place within the last few decades, uh, Christianity is wrapped up with all of these other identities. Uh, so political scientist Liliana Mason um, she, uh, she talks about how, uh, what's, what's taken place over the last few decades is what she calls identity stacking. Uh, and so we have, uh, because of partisan sorting in the United States, because people are basically taking their political party and their ideology and, and, and everything about their identity is kind of matching on to one, like whether you drive a pickup or a Prius, whether you're rural or urban, high educated or low education, older or younger, uh, religious or irreligious or evangelical or secular, you're kind of, you're, you're, you're figuring out where do people like us vote and belong. Uh, and, and so what's, what's happening is you get what Liliana Mason calls identity stacking. Uh, and so all of these things become bound together, like your, your social identity. So it's really difficult for, for Americans as, as America secularizes slowly. And that's, that's undeniable. So America has, has been secularizing slowly. America is also becoming more diverse racially and religiously. Uh, and at the same time, you've got the Republican Party uh, becoming more ideologically pure, more disproportionately white, and more disproportionately conservative Christian. So all of those things are getting wrapped up together. So in a very real sense, these Americans who buy into what we call white Christian nationalism are, are very much uh, like um, under the impression that people like them are under attack, that they are being persecuted and targeted. Uh, that their culture, and this is the language that they would use. Trump used this and others used this as well, that, that where is our country going? And uh, our way of life is under attack. And America, as we know it, is under attack and under siege in this kind of language. It's culture war language. But, but what they're talking about is 
there's so much, it's not just religion, but it's also our culture. It's also our ethnic, our ethnic heritage in a way, uh, and our morals and our traditions. And in some ways they're right, honestly, like America is changing. And, and a lot of the things that we took as normal or standard, uh, are being challenged because America is diversifying. And, uh, and you could make the argument that America is becoming more like what it always espoused itself to be a, a country that is, uh, where we where we value uh, full legal equality under the law uh, and representative democracy and everybody gets a say in our uh, in our in our republic and so they're they're coming to terms with this fact that America as they know it is changing and they don't like that and the thing they don't like the most is that their own position and their own preferences in our society are being exchanged for others. Uh, and so that's a that's a really tough thing to to grapple with. Yeah, and you know we see that. I'm sure that 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 you follow this a little bit, but you know we have this thing in Washington called the People's Convoy, where a bunch of truckers got together and they're you know they're stationed outside of Washington. Actually, they're just leaving, and for the past three or four weeks they've been trying to mess up traffic and protest. But when they when they talk about what they're interested in. Their issues are all over the board. You know, it started as an anti-vaccine campaign, but they embraced a lot of the 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 Trump stuff, and and they all seem to embrace the whole QAnon conspiracy right. theory stuff. And, yeah, and it just seems so strange that it's really not about any particular principle as much as it is about them. You know, and the, right. and their particular right. status. <laughs> And what's right. happened? Uh, uh, yeah, it just uh, it just amazes me. Well, let me ask you: um, since you've uh, consulted with the members of Congress that are um, studying the insurrection that happened on January sixth, did the right. did Christian nationalists play a big role in that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is it's it, it's it's one thing to say. You know, I think it would be inappropriate to say Christian nationalism explains it all, right? Like, there's a lot of factors, and people had their own right. reasons. Uh, but, but it was clear that, that Christian nationalism was on display at the Capitol. Like, it's, it's inarguable. I mean, you saw uh, amidst all of the chaotic violence that we, we saw that day, we saw Jesus save signs and Christian flags yeah. and, and Christian yeah. T-shirts, and we saw impromptu worship sessions on the, uh, uh, you know, in the— on the grounds and, and throughout. And then there was a, there's this, this prayer in Jesus's name on the Senate chamber after these, after the, the rioters had, had broken through and, and, and taken control of the chamber. Uh, and uh, if you, if you, you know, look at collections of quotes from those who stormed the, the Capitol, uh, it's that same kind of rhetoric that they were, that America was going to be reborn. That this was a Christian nation that they were, they were wanting to pray God's blood or Jesus's blood over the Capitol. Uh, and so and, um, and the, uh, the testimony of Officer Hodge, this, this famous uh, officer who was videotaped being punched in the face and right. washed in between a door and screaming, uh, his testimony uh, said, you know, like the people who assaulted me were, were, were definitely thought themselves Christians. I mean, he, and, he, and he lists all of the things that he saw. And, and so white Christian nationalism was very much on display at the Capitol. What we were what we've been talking about over the last, uh, I guess, year or so since that event happened We've been collecting survey data, uh, and we have found that white Christian nationalist ideology, as we try to measure it, um, is, is 
is strongly associated with the kinds of things that we witnessed at the Capitol and the kinds of uh, things that we believe influenced uh, what took place on January 6th. For example, we've already talked about this a second, uh, belief in conspiracy theories. Um, we find that the more white, uh, white Americans subscribe to Christian nationalist ideology, the, the fact that they believe the election was stolen is almost, is almost 100%. It's well over 90%. At, at those who score at the highest percentile of our, of our scale, uh, they, they convinced that the election was stolen. Uh, they are also more likely to believe in QAnon conspiracy. And I, and I mean, believe, I believe the, I, I, I'm talking about the wacky parts of it, like the, the, mm. the elite media financial worlds and politics are run by a, a ring of child sex traffickers, right? Like that, that kind of insane belief uh, is actually really prominently present among people who subscribe to Christian nationalist ideology. Other things that like, like Antifa and Black Lives Matter were the ones who started the violence, or that uh, even even regarding COVID, that COVID vaccines are killing people, uh, and that uh, you know the COVID vaccines aren't aren't actually safe or effective at all, right? Like these these kinds, of, or the government's hiding everything it knows about about the origins of COVID. So uh, the more white Americans subscribe to Christian nationalism, the more likely they're 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 going to buy into the the really dangerous kinds of conspiracy theories. Uh, but on top of that, we find white Christian nationalism is associated with support for authoritarian violence. That is like violence uh, as a means of accomplishing some kind of righteous goal or what goal you perceive to be righteous. So we found, for example, in the report we just filed, uh, white Christian nationalism is 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 strongly associated with uh, with the belief that uh, things have gotten so far off track in this country that true American patriots may have to resort to physical violence in order to save the country. I mean, that, that really is something that they are affirming. Um, lastly, we find that, that uh, white Christian nationalism is is fundamentally anti-democratic. It's, it's not about increasing access to the vote or increasing access to participation in democracy. It, it, actually, it actually favors strongly uh, measures or policies that would limit access to the vote. Uh, so. Taking all of this stuff together, it, it seems clear that the kind of thing that we saw on January 6th is really indicative of a broader and more pervasive ideology that is anti-democratic, uh, I, I think, violence as a means of accomplishing goals, uh, and particularly paranoid and, uh, and prone to conspiracy theory. That, and that is, I mean, that is certainly what we were seeing on display January 6th, combined with of course, like very vitriolic rhetoric from Trump and the right circumstances uh, of, a, of a mob crowd. Well, you know, first of all, I got to tell you, we had a professor from the University of Maryland who studies revolutions that was uh, at the January 6th thing. And uh, at the he was not only he not only went to the Capitol, but he was at the rally beforehand. And he said the thing that really struck him is that he's gone to so many demonstrations in Washington. But in this demonstration, he saw a disproportionate amount of middle class and upper middle class white people. He said they were people that went to the Capitol and rioted. And then he would see them later at the Marriott having cocktails on the Miranda. And, <laughs> and, you right. know, and he said it just right. blew him away that there were so many, you know, because he was used to seeing young people, disenfranchised people, people of color, you know, and he said none of that. It looked like, you know, if they told you it was an art convention, 
you would, you know, you would believe it. So, um, is where is the energy coming for this movement? Is it old white people who whose status has been reduced, and uh, or or are there young people involved? Are there where's the where is the energy for the growth of this movement coming from? Do you know? Right, I I I I think it's coming from across the spectrum. I don't see it localized within one particular age group. We don't see this like primarily among uh, older or younger or, or that kind of thing. And as you were saying, like this, you know, what what the professor witnessed this being a middle class thing. I think that that feeds into to uh, what we are trying to argue as well is is. Uh, we are scared that Americans are going to dismiss as this goes further into the rearview mirror and we start to reinterpret things that have happened in America's history, uh, oftentimes toward political ends. We reinterpret those things in ways that are convenient to our party or partisan interests. Yeah. Um, as we start to reinterpret these things, uh, I think Americans will be too quick to say that this is a fringe thing, uh, that this is, some, this is just a 500 people who went crazy one day and it wasn't that bad anyways. Uh, and, but they, you know, they went too far and I don't endorse that, but that is something that's fringe and marginal. It would never happen uh, again. And what we're trying to argue is that like these people came from just middle-class churches in Texas and all around the country. Uh, they went home to their communities where they have, you know, lawns that were mowed and they have uh, pastors that were right. preaching messages that were, uh, you know, uh, that, that, that were probably middle of the road evangelical fair. And they took that and, and applied it and, it, and it became what we saw on January 6th. So the, the, the ideology of white Christian nationalism that we saw on display on January 6th, yes, that was an extreme example of what happened. I'm not saying that that happens every weekend or that could happen every weekend. But uh, I do think the kinds of elements that we see mixed in, uh, the ideological elements that contributed to what took place, are far more pervasive then we like to acknowledge that we feel comfortable acknowledging. But I, I think it's right there in the survey data that, that a, a surprisingly large number of, of Americans and white Americans in particular um, uh, buy into Christian nationalist ideology. And the more that they do, the more they are amenable uh, to certain kinds of attitudes and behaviors that we feel like uh, are anti-democratic and dangerous. Well, you know, and, and I remember very distinctly seeing a a special that was done by Hallmark 40 years ago about the situation in Skokie, where the not uh, the American uh, Nazi party wanted to hold a rally in a city that was primarily where there were many Holocaust survivors. And oh, I wow. remember the ACLU represented the Nazis. They represented the Nazis. They said, Freedom of speech is freedom of speech. And the main character that was representing uh, a group of Jews that were trying to resist this said this is exactly what they said about Hitler, that it's a handful of people. He's crazy. It's nothing to worry about. You know, right. uh, nothing's going to happen. And, uh, you know, uh, so... I think it's, I really think it's something to worry about. But let me ask you again, I have another question from my uh, co-host who's a scientist. And she says, sure. has your work looked at the biological component of violence? The work of many, and especially Dr. Jonathan Pinkus, a Georgetown neurologist, shows that there are deeper underlying, underlying causes that conscious, that 
conscious empathy and ethics are not born inborn qualities, but are learned behaviors. In emotionally deprived children, Pincus's research shows that the brain development is permanently skewed by abusive upbringing. Impulses created by abuse are encoded in their brains when mental illness and neurology damage are added, which may be caused may cause um, uh, exposure to drugs or alcohol or birth defects, any of these things. And her basic question is, do conditions exist that are quite likely to provide to produce violent antisocial acts? And is that a biological thing? Is there a biological component? Do you have has has there been research uh, that shows there's a biological component that makes these people prone, more prone to violence? Um, so we do know, and this is, I mean, I think that's a, that's an astute question and one that, that needs, uh, needs to be answered. But I think what we, what we are seeing, and this is, uh, research that, um, research that has been done recently on tracking, say, young people, uh, who have grown into Americans who become more Christian nationalists, uh, over time. Um, and so one of, one of the things that, uh, that say this is an author, Michael Rotolo, who is a, a, a graduate student at Notre Dame, and he was able to analyze this data that tracks Americans from the time that they are teenagers, early teens, all the way into their 20s. Um, and so uh, what, what, they, what, what he finds is, is that uh, Americans who uh, experience more authoritarian kinds of, of parenting uh, and in some ways traumatic events uh, are more likely to go, grow into uh, Christian nationalism. Uh, so I'll just read you part of this uh, part of this author, uh, part of what this this abstract this abstract says. And he's got a lot of different data sources, but he says the author identifies distinct traumatic upbringing experiences among respondents, which conditioned heightened rage and fear affective systems. And this gives Christian nationalists an enduring sense that their way of life is under attack and motivates reactionary socio political attitudes. Uh, so I think that's uh, it's uh, hitting pretty close to what uh, uh, your um, uh, what your co-host is is asking about. Is I, I think this this author, at least in his social science research, and this is an award-winning uh, uh, article that he published, uh, is 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 finding that younger Americans who I think are exposed to uh, the kind of upbringing that that you are going to see, uh, say, more authoritarian forms of discipline. Um, Potentially uh, witness outcomes that would lead one to, and this is uh, this should be unsurprising to anybody who's who's familiar with uh, research on abusers as they get older. They they themselves were were abused younger, uh, right. and this shapes their expectations for how relationships go and and for what you know how how discipline is is thought about and even their acceptability of like violence. Um, so I, I'm uncomfortable kind of talking about what's going on at the cognitive level. <laughs> Uh, because I, that's, that's just not what we're observing. We're not observing kind of brain functioning or fMRI scanners, but but we are, uh, in, I think, in that paper, observing uh, that there is a, a link between, say, earlier socialization uh, and the kinds of outcomes that we see later on. Yeah, that's a that's something that's always amazed me that abusers become abusers. Uh, because my father was physically abused as a child, uh, he had a, he had a very violent dad and he he couldn't bring himself 
to be violent with us. You know, he would do all sorts of uh, discipline if we if we got out of hand. But but he was so I assumed that that was the way most people felt. You know, that this was a horrible thing in my childhood, and I'm not going to pass it on to my children. But certainly, we see that's not true. Um, right. Let me. Let me ask you, you know, it's always been, again, I, I as a politician, I want to, I'm very interested in our culpability as liberals, you know, I remember, okay, going, okay. To, I, I remember going to a rally uh, where they asked me to speak after Trump was elected, and some woman stood up and said, as liberal Democrats, we have nothing to apologize for. And I was stunned by that. I said, of course, we have something to apologize for. This man got elected, you know, and if, <laughs> if, if people, you know, if we were doing such a great job as Democrats, uh, right, right, we wouldn't have gotten elected. So what do you think our culpability is? And, and let me just add that I, ever since I've been in politics 40 years, I think the Achilles heel of the liberal Democrats is that we talk down to people. You yes, know, you're, uh, you're not, yeah. you're not, you don't need a gun. You're just too damn stupid to realize it. And we're going to explain it to you. We're going to explain to right. you why you need a gun rather than sitting down and trying to talk to you about it. So what do you think right. our well, capability is? Yeah, that certainly plays into the narrative of like, you know, the elites are our enemies. Uh, so the, the scientists and the academics and the media elite there and the establishment politicians there they're out of touch and they don't understand what people like us need or want. And they, they are, you know, against real Americans like us. Um, I, I think along with that, uh, I think Democrats need to be so wary of buying into the us versus them mentality uh, that, that really only feeds, that really only feeds the radicals. <laughs> so like, yeah. it only helps uh, that extreme partisanship. That's not where Americans live. If I were to show you, if, if, if I were to show you say a, uh, uh, what's called a histogram chart of, of where most Americans on most issues end up congregating. Most Americans are not extreme, even in their political ideology. Most Americans are not like extremely liberal or extremely conservative. It is not a what we call a bimodal distribution uh, across political ideology. Most Americans are, are in the middle. Uh, they're, they're kind of moderate. They're kind of maybe, maybe slightly liberal, slightly conservative. Uh, they don't like to see themselves as extreme radicals. Uh, very few people do. But when we get into this uh, us versus them, and, and when I say we, I just I'm I'm, I'm an independent here in Norman. But I, I, I when I say we, I mean people who have a problem with this kind of ideology. So you've got Democrats. Uh, I, I think it hurts them to the extent that they buy into the us versus them mindset, and it causes them to basically play the same game that the extremists on the right do. And it's a game that only benefits them because it makes them feel persecuted. So when others on the right can, uh, so on the far right, and I, and I don't mean just like conservatives, slightly conservatives, I mean people on the far right. When people on the far right can point to quotes or survey statistics or, or little snippets of, 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 uh, of arguments from people that, that they can say, hey, look, these people hate us. Uh, and these people are out to get us and they want to take away everything from us. Um, you know, I, I think giving them ammo doesn't doesn't really help our uh, doesn't really help the cause of one democracy at all, uh, but also helping to bridge those kinds of divides. And I think it starts and this is something that a lot of 
uh, Americans don't understand, it, it really starts with the, the rhetoric of elites. Um, as, as much as we like to think that, uh, and, and by we, I mean the um, uh, American public who are not politicians, as much as we like to, to think that uh, we, can, we can ride the wave of populist, uh, you know, grassroots mobilization to really cause some change, oftentimes the, the, first, the first people who move are the elites and with their rhetoric, that's why we call them leaders. You know, they, 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 they lead in the, in the rhetoric and the kinds of things that they champion and, and get behind. And so if you have elite politicians coming out and using really extremist rhetoric, uh, that is so toxic. Uh, and so when the Democrats play into that game and, and start, you, you're able to get these kinds of sound bites that are able to be misconstrued or, or, or used as like, look how much they hate us. Look how much they hate the right. These are just leftist socialists. Uh, you know, anti-American uh, people. I, I think we we end up under undercutting the opportunity for real dialogue, and it just plays into the radical uh, fringe. Well, you know, Doctor, you just explained uh, the basis of this show. We started this show. I started this show with a co-host was a who was a Republican, who is a woman who lives on the West Coast, and uh, uh, and she left the show. Uh, she was on the show for six years, and now my new co-host is also she's a she's a Republican. She was appointed by several Republicans. Uh, she's now an independent since Donald Trump, but uh, you know she's a Reagan appointee and a Bush appointee, a woman. You know, and and, and that's the idea of the show is that we're really closer in ideology in in many respects uh, than 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 it looks, and we're trying to. We're trying to, you know, um, show that by bringing a Republican and Democrat together, an independent and a Democrat together. Uh, but um, let me ask you um, again, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but how do we get from, I don't like the Democrats, I feel we're under attack. How do we get from that to actually being violent? Is there only a certain, is this just a fringe of people that are violent, or is the movement itself becoming more violent as a whole? We see people yeah. carrying guns in church. They bring guns right. to church. Yeah, so so we're going to see, I, I think we see more violence as violence becomes normalized, and as, as yeah. that rhetoric, and, and as people become radicalized and, and feel more and more under attack and persecuted. Uh, I think what took place on January 6th is, is a combination of ideology uh, and the kind of ideology that, that I'm talking about today. But, but it is also, and, and, and I don't want to ignore this, it is also a, a function of what happens in, in, in mobs of, of people, right? Like it's, that is a sociological <laughs> just right. fact Mob that like, what take, what, yeah, what, what takes place at football games? We, we scream right. and we rant and we say things to the rest that we would never say to them one-on-one uh, right. or, or want to be heard said, you know? And, and so, uh, and so when you are swept up in the euphoria of anger and, uh, and, and righteous outrage or what you perceive to be righteous outrage, uh, and you see other people doing it, I mean, we are capable of horrible, horrible things. Now, um, the reason those people were there in the first place is because of, of what, we have, what we have talked about thus far, right? Like that kind of underlying ideology. And yet what can activate that ideology into mob violence is... Uh, I, I think uh, angry rhetoric from a, uh, an angry politician 
uh, and the perception that something has been stolen from you and that you are justified in doing whatever it takes uh, to take back what is rightfully yours. So it's a combination of misinformation and conspiracy theory and mob violence or mob mentality and anger underlied by this this idea that America is for people like us. When you think about when you think about what the, the QAnon shaman said this so many times that it's almost memorized in my head, but when the QAnon shaman was praying that prayer on the Senate chamber, just the words that he was using, you know, he was thanking God for filling the chamber with patriots that love God and that love Jesus, uh, and for uh, allowing him and his his uh, cons- his his, uh, his accomplices to send a message to all the tyrants and the communists and the globalists that this is our nation, not theirs, and for allowing America to be reborn. I mean, think think about that kind of ideology. That re- what's what's buried in that that rhetoric is is an ideology that I'm talking about. So you've got both the combination of Christian nationalist ideology, but you've also got this kind of what happens to Christian nationalism when it's combined with mob violence and, and angry rhetoric. And the mob, correct me if I'm wrong here, doctor, but the mob uh, indemnifies me as an individual, right? It legitimizes what I'm doing. It allows me to put, you know, to to put responsibility, uh, uh, you know, to to disregard the responsibility I have as a person and put it off on the crowd. Does it not? Does it not encourage me? And is there some critical mass that might be reached in this movement, uh, as we've seen in in, in fascist countries, for example, Italy, yeah, Germany, right. during the Second World War? Is that something right. we need to worry about? Well, so it's it's I have two responses to that. So on the one hand, Christian nationalism as an ideology is declining as a percentage of the population. So we can see this in several different data sources that it doesn't seem to be, it doesn't seem to be growing, even though there's, there's two, two, two points in response to that. So Christian nationalism is, is, is an ideology that's always there and latent in America's body politic and their popular consciousness, but, but it, our consciousness, but, but it's also something that can be activated and stoked by the perceptions of threat, threats toward, white American threats toward Christians, basically majority groups. And so even though we see it on the decline slightly, we could see it bounce back if the right amount of you know, pressure or rhetoric or misinformation or kind of anxiety gets stoked. Uh, the sa- also, it, it can be said that even though Christian nationalism is declining, that could be used to radicalize, right? Like that kind of real perception that, hey, we are d- diminishing in numbers and we are under even more severe threat. Could be used to stoke perceptions of persecution, of targeting, of discrimination, uh, and that could be used to m- make more militant those populations or to radicalize. So, I think what's ha- I mean, and the potential for say, Trump rallies or something or something like that. Those those kinds of rallies where there's just angry rhetoric and there's promises to take the country back and to make America great again, and it's mixed in with all of this anti-immigrant, Islamophobic, out- anti-outsider kind of sentiment. I mean, I think that could bubble up and boil over to uh, to the kind of mob violence we saw at the Capitol. And it's a very old political tactic. I mean, that, that yes, of course, you know, of course. <clears throat> whatever your problems are, they're not they're not the result of anything that you did. They're the result exactly. of, of somebody else. And you know, one of my favorite <clears throat> political characters from history is a guy named Huey Long from from Louisiana, who used to say, you know. Uh, there's 100,000 Frenchmen in New Orleans, and your house could burn down and your baby could drown, and not one of them would care. 
you know, and that was the rhetoric mm. that 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 raised him to the, you know, the position of of the uh, United States senator. There's actually a statue to him. He was a very corrupt guy, but there's actually a statue to him in in the United States Capitol. It's one of the Louisiana statues. Uh, well, Doctor, we're running out of time here. We only have a few minutes left. So let me ask you, is there anything that, that you want to talk about, anything that you want to say that, that I haven't asked you that you think is important, uh, especially when it comes – when is the flag and the cross? That hasn't been – uh, released yet? Am I right? Or, or uh, no, it just released? got released today. So yeah, thank oh, you for clarifying great. that. It, it actually today it, it dropped officially. So uh, it's available uh, for purchase both in Kindle and uh, as a hardback, and an audiobook should be available. That's in the in the works. Uh, so hopefully that'll be available soon. Good. And and if if people want to reach out to you, is there a website or or something that you want to give that? Where, where where people can get more information or, or reach right. out to you in any way? So they could either follow me on Twitter. So I, I'm at uh, Soch of the Sacred. That's S-O-C uh, of the Sacred. Uh, at you know, and that's uh, that's my Twitter handle. Mm-hmm. And, or they could just look me up at Samuel Samuel Perry, uh, or they could email me at samperry at ou dot edu. Just my school email account. That would be the way. Well, and you know what? I got to tell you, in doing research about you, we were stunned to find out how many Twitter followers you have. You have a ton of Twitter followers. So, uh, is what do you think about that? As a, 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 a does this help us? That it seems uh, is it just because of your your great looks and sterling personality, or is that <laughs> people getting are people getting more interested in this? I think this is, uh, let's just say a both and. <laughs> no, I'm All just right. kidding. It's, uh, yeah, no, it's, you know, I think it's, it really is because we're, we're trying to do the kind of work that people are, are interested in. Me, my co-authors and I, the people who are collecting data and doing research on, on Christian nationalism and, and, uh, and religion and American politics generally, are trying to do the kind of research that I think people are interested in. And they, and they frankly need to know about. Um, one of the things that I'm committed to is I, I believe when, when social scientists stop talking about these issues in public, in a public forum, there are other people who would gladly tell the whole world about all of these things, but uh, often they're, they're the kind of people that we don't want <laughs> telling those right. people. So, uh, so we want to we do really good data-driven, honest research that informs the public, and hopefully our, my followers would, would agree that that's what's happening. Well, I think your work is so important, Doctor, and I think you've been an amazing guest. And I hope as, as things proceed and, and uh, you know, we can have you back again sometime so you can give us an update. And don't be surprised if you see me sitting in the back row of one of your classes where, you know, if I audit one <laughs> of your classes, I'll be the guy in the back hiding so that the professor doesn't, doesn't ask me any questions. That was a... Uh, technique I, I developed when I was when I was a college student. So uh, continued success, Dr. Perry. Thanks so much for the important work that you do. And thanks for coming on our show today. We usually dedicate uh, at the end of the show, we always end it with a song that we dedicate to our guests. So here's a militant Christian song from the past, only slightly militant. <laughs> Onward, Christian soldiers. Thank you, Dr. Uh, Ferrer. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much. All right. Bye-bye, folks. We'll see you next week.